Hi, I'm Tyler Yules. Welcome to How the Grades Do It. Welcome back. How the Grades Do It. We have Etai Karelic, super excited, CRO at VHive. Um, really excited about having you on and appreciate you jumping on with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Man, I'd love for you to tell the guests a little bit about yourself and, um, and we can kind of just jump in from there. Sure. So, uh, um, I guess, uh, Itai, I, uh, professionally, I'm the CRO of, uh, Vihai. I've been with the company now over, for over five years. So from revenues of zero to, uh, uh, over 10, uh, you know, people say about a startup when it's private, it's between 10 and 50. That's, that's the bracket. I can't uh, specifically uh, mention numbers. <laughs> Uh, I also am yep. a co-founder of two other startups at, uh, in the energy space, um, for which I don't have any executive role, but I enjoy starting things up. Um, some things have, uh, were successful, something less so. Father of three, living in New York, uh, Israeli originally, uh, been in the States now for 18 years. I'm very excited to be on your platform and uh, kind of learn from you, share what uh, information I have for questions you have, and uh, hopefully to grow a community. Yeah, I love that, and I appreciate appreciate you taking the time. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into sales, because a lot of times it's a really unique um, story there. Um, so, you know, I, I, I I'll use a story. Um, my first customer at VI we went to do a demo, a live demo. We'll talk about the technology later, but it's in the field, so it's actually interesting. You see, a drones flying for themselves, etc., and it, it really is not. It, it is part and parcel of what we do, but it's not paramount to the to the overall solution. But people want to see it, and the first customer was almost, yeah, this is about five years ago. And uh, one of the key things about the technology, how simple it is, right? It, it does amazing things very simply, and uh, the VP of operations, this big, uh, big American corporation looks at me and so goes, so simple, even a salesperson can do it. And I think ultimately, um, <laughs> I don't have the, I, I think the career in a way chose me in the sense that I don't have the patience to be a developer. Um, I don't have the, um, maybe too much ADHD to uh, be a coder. And um, even though I enjoy technology and it's, you have to manage people. You have to set uh, expectations with people. Uh, you have to gain people's trust. Um, you have to deliver on your promises and ultimately i'm pretty good at those things and uh in business to business sales that's what that's what's required you, uh, you require a strong technological platform that provides tremendous value to the customer otherwise they're not going to change what they're doing today but they also need to trust you they need to know that uh, whoever's sitting in front of them it's 50 50 whoever's sitting in front of them they trust and they also trust him and so they trust the technology and the value they're going to bring and i think i'm pretty good at uh, getting people to trust me and and not abusing that trust yeah. right and having a long-term five-year relationship with somebody that says i'm happy i made the decision and put my money on you absolutely it's funny brother you hear from um prospects every day in and day out i think that salespeople they they build the trust but i think a lot of what the hard part is, is the execution of the trust is like doing what you say you're going to do. And so I'd love to hear like how, how you build trust with your prospects 
and I think there's the hard part is building it as quickly as possible. So, so that's, that's very, very true. I think there are two phases in the life of an early stage company. And I think it's very different for people who come from a larger corporate. Um, there's the evangelical stage. If you are, if you have an innovative technology that nobody's using today and you and just a couple of competitors are trying to vie for a market space and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. So there's the evangelical uh, time where um, you really, I think the name is apt. You really have to convince people to believe in you. It's, it's all it is, right? It's, and that's, if we, we, we take it from religion, but it is that, just believe me, the tro- the, this story is true and it will make your life better. And, um, yeah. and how you do that is the correct messaging and understanding really what, what drives your customer. I think people sometimes say they use an analogy from uh, from the world of medicine and say, "Oh, find something the, the, their their biggest problem and cure it." Right? It's like just like cancer. And ultimately, in pharmaceuticals, lifestyle drugs make more money than cancer drugs. And I think it's the same here. You don't have to solve their biggest problem. You have to know what their biggest problem is. You have to acknowledge it and 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 show how you somehow alleviate it, but you can solve a myriad of other problems that are much simpler um, and provide a lower hanging fruit and, and, and value. So, you know, at the evangelical phase, you just have to be outspoken and be the first to market and convince the first big customer. And really, I don't know how I did it. If I, if I, if I did write the formula, I don't. I think once you move from that and you become a much much more established company and not that we're that established there's 60 of us so we're not very big yet but we are the leader in digitization in the telecom space i know to many of your listeners it won't say anything but because it is a nascent uh industry you have to deliver you have to make sure that you never over promised and under and under delivered and uh you have to set expectations as well the in in new technology I believe there's two things that are that are uh, that are true at the same time. One is what you can deliver to your customer is greater than what the customer understands that can be delivered. And it takes them time to understand, oh, it can do this and it can do this and it can do that. The more complex one is there's a bigger difference between what the customer imagines can happen and what can really can happen. Usually they imagine I'll click a button and my problems will be solved. Because we all want that, and that's that's an expect that's an unrealistic expectation. And still to say, well, I'll deliver not on your dreams, but on your hopes, maybe, and I will do that. And these are the timeframes I will deliver on that. And uh, if they're disappointed by the timeframes, you have to convince them that these are not disappointing timeframes. Once the first time you deliver on that correct time frame, they're yours forever. Right. As long as you continue delivering that. on the roadmap and on the value that you're providing at the designated time, you've said it's going to take a quarter, should not take more, a week more than a quarter is, is max. Be very accurate at what you do. Right. And if you've delivered and you say, well, the next phase is going to take six months, they will wait six months for you. And if you deliver it after six months, that's it. They're, they're your customer and they'll trust you. Yeah, I think that all goes back to that trust, right? And and setting expectations, I think, is a really great part of that. Um, and and helping build that trust. You know, I think 
a lot of what salespeople miss day in and day out is setting that expectation on the front end so that there's not issues on the back end um, where there's a mismanage of expectations because that's really where customers feel like, man, they were baited and switched. And, so I love that you brought that up. Yes, and I think ultimately um, I sell on, only to large enterprises and the decisions are made at sea level. Um, so um, the, you know, and, and, and it's a small industry, telecom, at sea level, tier one, uh, telecom companies, there aren't a lot. You know, in the US, there's three big network operators and three big tower companies. That's it. I have a total of six customers. If I mess up with one, right. all of the other five are going to hear about it. Uh, and, and if I don't mess up with that one, the other five might not go for it, but at least they'll know that I didn't mess that up. And uh, and it's, it, it's imperative. The higher up you go, the more you must deliver on what you promised. And um, yes, it's it's setting expectations and it's knowing which deal to walk away from. I um, uh, we have a deal we're negotiating right now in an Asian country, and for good economic reasons, they're demanding a price that uh, does not leave enough margin for us to command the margins that software companies should command. And I'm willing to walk away from uh, from the revenue. Now the revenue is tremendous because Asia is big and there's a lot of people, um, but I'm not in the Walmart business of making a cent on every dollar and selling a couple billion dollars. That's not we're software and you should know right. what to walk away from as well, because you will set unrealistic expectations and then you'll start nickeling and diming them. And then the relationship will deteriorate and uh, you should walk away from almost any deal, but just the ones that really are going to hurt you. Yeah. You know, when you have a small target list, and you're trying to reach out to a set amount of companies and it's almost like for you, right? Like you're whale hunting. Um, like, are there any tactics or strategies that you implement to try to um, set yourself apart? Cause at that point, right. It's, it's not a mass email list that you can reach out no, to and, and power yeah. dial, right? Like, so what do you do in that sense? Right. Um, It's a combination of two things, right? The first one is you do need a superior technological platform. And again, uh, do my competitors have something that uh, I don't? Sure, but um, you must have things that they don't. And the overall suite must be better than theirs, even if there are things that they don't provide. And I think the other thing is you have to believe in what you do. And if you believe in what you do, people will believe you. It goes back a little bit to that evangelical phase but it's much more mature where I know I can do this for you. And the good thing about as you mature as a company is that you can have reference customers. And uh, by reference customer, I mean uh, C-level execs. You go call this executive vice president as a multi-billion dollar uh, uh, corporation. And, uh, and just the fact that you can name the name and provide the contact details, that already instills confidence. And they will call him up, trust me. Uh, once you yeah. have the reference customers that with those big whales, they're like, all right, I don't know that I will choose you, but I know whatever happens, um, it's not, it's not going to be a bad decision. I, I might, I might make a better decision, but it's not, not going to be a bad decision. This has been vetted by others. I don't have to, I don't have to make a mistake here. Right. And, and, and that, uh, that's very important. Um, so yes, just have, a a real technological advantage and really believe in what you do and uh, listen to your customers, ask them questions. And one of the things my team and I are working all the time 
is ask questions that lead your customer to respond what you want. The real worst thing is, oh, what do you think about the platform? Why well, I don't like it. That's it. The meeting's over, right? <laughs> right? You, you have, Absolutely. You have yeah, to ask a question sure. that leads the person to the answer you want them to say. At the end, the, at the end, with a series of questions they have to answer, I'm going to make a decision now because without this, I will, I will be worse off. The cost of doing nothing is much greater than the cost of working with you guys because I've answered certain questions to myself through these questions that you've asked me that I feel confident that I have to make a decision. And again, you have to be very subtle about this, right? You can't... Uh, um, you, you have to be subtle and you have to know, again, what, what are the issues that are facing your customer? Yeah. And, you know, you talk about that, that art of sales, right? Like, I think leading the conversation is part of that art of sales and something you learn over time um, that we hopefully get better at. How do you get in front of that first large customer um, to then have them be your, your, star, your star customer to um, help, help amplify your brand? I uh, typically it will be at a conference or from from uh, from a personal acquaintance. So you either have a long-standing history in that industry, or your salesperson, or somebody, your board member, somebody has a very long standing in that industry and knows that person well. Or you're at a conference and uh, what you're what you're providing is brand new. They've never heard of it, right? They've never heard of it. Let's say you're in telecom. If they're doing, if you have a new technology for uh, radio frequency network planning, there's a billion other companies. Maybe you have a technology advantage, but they'll say, go to my RF engineer, right? That they'll know who to guide you to. But if you're saying, oh, I right. need to, I, I'm going to help you digitize your infrastructure using autonomous drones, they're like, what? I've never heard of that before, right? And uh, and luckily for us, the 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 CEO and uh, COO of um, of the uh, infrastructure division of Deutsche Telekom were like, oh, this sounds interesting. I've never heard that one before. And uh, you also want to target companies that are open to new technologies. So kind of Deutsche Telekom is one of those where they, they Germans pride themselves on engineering and on being innovative in technology. So you want to, it's almost an ego thing. Oh, we got to be first at this, right? And then um, a year later, there's a corporate video that shows your logo um, and the Deutsche Telekom logo, which they release to the to LinkedIn, and I'm like, all right, just look at what they release. I, I didn't write that, and uh, and so oh, okay, yeah. somebody somebody did their due diligence. So I think I can only answer from, and I'll summarize that. I can only answer from a new technology perspective, but either know them personally or somebody knows them personally, or meet them at a conference and. Um, but the only hook will be something they've never heard of, of before. That's, I sh I'm sure other people will have other solutions, but that's what worked for me. Yeah. No, I love that. You know, differentiating yourself in the market market is some sometimes difficult. Maybe not as difficult when your technology is new and innovative, right? And that helps differentiate yourself in having those conversations. Absolutely. But today, for example, you know, that's it. There's like four or five competitors. So. Right now, the conversation is complete. It's not evangelical anymore. And that's the difference between the evangelical part where people say, oh, I, I, I want to hear more about that. And it's like, forget about the rest of the boring stuff I've been right. doing in the last 20 years. Today, when we talk to executives, it's much more about, well, these are this is our track record. 
This is who we work with. This is our reference customers. These are your issues. This is how we can solve your issues. And this is how we solve the same issues for other customers. So if I, uh, you know, I have a press release with Verizon, so it's, I can name them as a customer, but if I go to the other mobile network operators and I, I can show the success story of their direct competitor, it's, and they face the same, exactly the same issues. Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. And so finding commonality between your prospects definitely helps open doors. You know, you mentioned knowing your prospect, like are there certain tools that you're using um, to be able to better understand your prospect, to understand their pain before going to them? Or is that something that you really start to understand deeper as you have just more discovery and more conversations? I think curiosity is key. Uh, before you go in, you should really learn what's going on. Um, humility is key. You're not going, there are things you're not going to know and, um, and you're going to have to learn from your customers. So asking questions, the thing about asking questions is be ready with the peripheral information you have to sound knowledgeable. So yes, you don't have to know hundred percent, but it can't be that there's a gap in knowledge that the, the person in front of you is surprised. Why doesn't this person in front of me speak the same language. You have to be able to speak the same language. Um, again, are, are there specific tools? Uh, just dive deep into industry research and, uh, and understand the lingo, etc. Look at interviews that these senior people have always done interviews. So look at interviews that they've done at conferences, etc. And they'll give you all the clues necessary to what concerns them today. If they're concerned, again, it doesn't matter what it means, but it's their, if their concern is new tower build and co-location, then your, whatever technological solution you have should fit that concern and should be very targeted to what that concern no. is. I love that, right? Like go outside the box, right? Listen to conferences that they've spoke at, um, go and listen to interviews, right? Like that's going to, a lot of times they'll give you um, that key information that you need to help get that door open or make that sale. Um, or make that first introduction, right? Like you got to think outside the box. And I, as I think about personalization in the market, it's something we miss uh, day in and day out. You know, how does your team make sure that they're personalizing to the point where, right? Like they maybe they're listening to a conference or or something like, what is, what is your team doing to making sure that as they reach out to somebody that they maybe not have, may not have had a conversation with before, um, that it doesn't fall on deaf ears. Yeah, and I think you can't be corny about it. Um, I'm sure you and I get the same number of uh, LinkedIn messages from SDRs or calls. Itai, it's amazing yeah. what VF does. And you, you just you have a chat GPT or some type of AI that copies and pastes something from my. It is so. It, it, it's it's insulting. I'd rather you write. Hey, I got a full stack developer I'd like to uh, propose uh, and, and just be direct and I can ignore or not ignore, but not no half measures. You either personalize or you don't. And I understand in the in a business of large numbers, let's say you're offering accounting software and you can personalize the way I do. But if, if your deal size is a million dollars and above and it takes you 12 months to close the deal at least, right, which is our, our, my main issue, then personalization has to be, you have to know what they like, what sport they play. Um, I'm not a golfer, but what's the, I know there's like a, a under par, whatever. What, what those numbers mean, 
right? And and and, yeah. uh, and really, what the latest uh, earnings call was, and what was their concern, and what did the analyst ask them in that earnings call? You know, why aren't you doing X, Y, Z? And though, oh, I heard the analyst says that, uh, no, that's that's too direct, it's too corny. Have a conversation with the person in front of you. Um, listen to them, talk to them, have reference points that make sense, but in a subtle way. It's uh, And that is really true personalization, because otherwise it's just, oh, I've made, I created a text and I'm gonna follow the text. No, that's not personalization, that's script. It works in the movies. That's <laughs> You know, it's funny, uh, so many people nowadays um, forget that conversation is a real thing and you don't need a script to be able to have a conversation. Um, but I think we forget that day in and day out. Yeah. And it, it goes oh. back, uh, I'll be facetious here, but how did I choose sales or how did sales choose me? I'm, I'm, I'm good at thinking on my feet. I'm good at uh, bullshitting in the right amount, right? In the term, evangelical is is that it, it's saying I can do all these things for you. Where mostly it's true, but there's that fantastical part as well. There's the future vision as well, right? And 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 yeah. it never has to be removed from reality, uh, because then again you set the wrong expectations. But there has to be a vision in it, and you have to be able to sell it. And when somebody says, "Oh, but I actually I was thinking this." Turn the conversation while what they thought is what you were going to talk. If you're going to talk out of a script, it's not going to work. And it will feel... Absolutely. Script works in Hollywood, and that's why they sound like so slick. And uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, the, the only difference is the, uh, the, the person sitting across the table also has a script that's pro for them. So they know it's going to be said back to them, and that's the only reason the script works. Yes, Probably. Yeah, you know, so often I think companies are putting people through a discovery process or a sales process that doesn't necessarily make sense. And especially as the buyer has evolved, um, we, we as salespeople or as sales operations have not evolved with it. Like, I'd love to understand, you know, what you all are doing to make sure that customers don't feel like they're being taken through this long drawn out process and um and maybe that's just part of like the conversation part right like so i think well the one thing we didn't do at the beginning of the conversation and i think might be relevant is where you fit in the sales process and i'll answer your question about long sales processes sorry it's uh, it's my accent that sometimes messes up the, the correct pronunciation but long sales processes is the world i live in nobody's going to take a decision on uh strategic initiative to digitize their infrastructure without at least a 12-month process, sometimes an RFP, and some of these contracts end up being three, four, five million dollars a yearly contracts on multi-year level. It's not, this is not going to be short. Um, and so, so I'll discuss the long sales process and how you shorten it, actually from our perspective, but the thing we should have defined at the beginning of the conversation is where do you see it as the CRO? There are CROs that live from tens of thousands of transactions a month for low uh, low sum and the interaction with the customer is low, uh, churn might be high, but also customer acquisition is high. And that's where the world of SDRs and, uh, and inbound and outbound marketing, that's not my world. I can't provide any comment about it. I know there's people that are amazing at it. I have no interest in doing it. 
<laughs> Godspeed to whoever does it and makes a lot of money in it. And, and really, there's different people that, are, that, that have different types of, uh, uh, of skills. And he's managing also a very large team. And that's great. It's one thing. Uh, then there's kind of a, in the middle where uh, you have a very large number of customers, but they're no more than, I don't know, globally 5,000 in, in every region. It's a, no more than a couple thousand. And there it's a combination of both, right? You can't have just a completely inexperienced SDR or, or outbound marketing. Uh, but, um, but again, the transaction size isn't large. Uh, there is a relationship with the customer, but a single person manages many relationships, right? It's, it could be 20 customers, 30 customers, 50 customers, depending on, on, on how you manage it. And, uh, and then there's the world I live in, where I really don't have, if I have 100 total customers in telecom in the world, that's, that's a lot. And I'm talking global. And, uh, and right. so there are no SDRs. Marketing is very, very targeted. Um, outbound is targeted specifically to who you are. <clears throat> the conferences are very, very uh, specific. So our best conference, the best conference we that yields the most results for us is the conference that's attended by 200 people. That's it. But the right 200 people. And that's about a, about 100 of them are vendors, by the way. So there's only 100 people I need to talk to. And of those 100, there's only really 15 or 20 that will make a decision uh, within that or influence a decision. Wow. And they're all there. And so it's it's um, so I'm, I'm in the world where um, you have to give your firstborn son to your salesperson that closes the deal because that deal is going to, you know, it's like, as you said, I hunt a whale and the fat from the whale just feeds you for ages. Um, right. And, uh, but, but hunting a whale, you know, there's, there's a reason there's a story about, uh, called Moby Dick, right? Everybody dies at the end, except one person, including the whale. It's very, very difficult. It's an arduous task. There is no way to shorten it. And, uh, on the contrary, our job as salespeople is to shorten the decision time. So if it's an average of 14 months, I need to bring it down to 18 months. Time to money is important. If it takes them four years to get to $5 million a year from $20,000 of a POC, you want to, instead of four years, you want to get to those $3 million in two years, right? That's your job as, as CRO. And you have a team of sales direct, you know, the hunters and the farmers, and everybody has to work in coordination to just help the whale. And the whale, by the way, has to get... If you're, they're paying you $5 million, the whale has to get out of it 20 to $25 million. Without that, they're not going to do it. And you have to show them out the 25, and they have to see it. It has to be very evident that they're getting the 25 million out. Uh, or maybe not 25, but at least 15, right? There has to be at least, uh, uh, you know, three to one or something like that. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that, that's your job. That's really, that's really where I sit. And for the world of smaller transactions, where how to shorten the sales cycle, I, I really couldn't provide any comments, and it, it's not my world. I, I've never done anything like that, and uh, I'm sure there's people you interview that will have amazing tips on how to do it. Yeah, so I have an interesting converse, uh, um, question, right? Like, you know, you're selling across multiple different cultures in different areas of the U.S. or the the, uh, the the world, right? Like, is the way that you sell different? Um, to different cultures and right like in the way that you you speak with people like are there different nuances and um things that you implement that you found successful yes um i think 
Uh, I'm not going to get into a uh, uh, anthropological dis uh, discussion on why the U.S. is a successful empire. Um, but one of the reasons is that people really understand here win-win. It's okay if I, pay, if I pay you five, if I get 15. That's really what people want to know in this country. I don't mind how much I'm paying, I mind, I mind how much I'm getting out. And it's an easier discussion. Um, um, so in the U.S., you really discuss value. Now, the problem becomes then, how do you define the value? Like sometimes an engineer will ask for a certain value that is, that is just 10% of the transaction and you've already covered 90, but he makes the whole, the whole process stuck because he's obsessed with that value. And then he's like, he's, you know, the, 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 the executive vice president said, okay, let's, let's, let's make sure he's happy as well. Right, because that's engineering division, yeah. and you're, oh my God, now I need an extra six months to just please them, even though ninety percent of the, everybody loves ninety percent of the transaction. By the time you finish those six months, there's a reorg, and now the EVP becomes C-level exec somewhere else, and so that's uh, that's the story of long sell cycles. But in general, people understand value in the United States, and you really target value. Um, I think in uh, Asia, the first thing people care about is cost cutting, and um, do I think it's their own view? Of course, uh, but it's the reality. It's they like cost cutting first and foremost. No, I understand the value. Just show me how I cut costs. Okay, that's a completely different discussion. Um, right. In um, in Africa, what we found is operational complexity uh, that drives things. I have an interesting story uh, that's related. There's a company that owns a lot of the telecom infrastructure in, in the world, actually. It's called American Tower, and they own a lot of the infra telecom infrastructure. They own the towers in, in, in a lot of countries in Africa. And because there's, there are power issues, they transport on a yearly basis 100 million liters of diesel just to get the power, right? Wow. So they are, they, they, they are a logistical company beyond the fact that they provide infrastructure for, for telecom. And that's when I mean operational right. complexity. But working in Africa is a lot. How do you get to the site? How do you digitize? It, there's a lot of things that, um, that are important in Africa that, that have to solve operational complexity. And of course, value must be there. They, they, um, you know, they are, these are poor countries, so if they don't get value, it's not going to uh, it's not going to work for them. In South America, it's a combination of cost cutting and value, uh, but it's a lot about personal relationships. I speak fluent Spanish, so it helps me, and I speak a little bit of Portuguese, so helps me with in Brazil as well. Uh, it's really familiarity. This uh, not that you don't take customers to dinner in uh, in North America, but it's a little bit different in South America in the sense of what they expect from a personal touch. Uh, but there's a lot of both cost cutting and value. Uh, they do understand many of them went to MBAs in the United States, so it's fairly easy. Although there is a culture of uh, a little bit more, a little slower. And uh, Europe is Europe is interesting. Um, it really varies based on culture. Uh, the Germans are not going to do business the way the same way as the French, and they're not. They are. They tend to be slower than the Americans. The Europeans um, tend to be very engineering focused and uh, precision focused and they, they, they really every every i must be dotted and every t must be crossed 
um, takes a little bit more time, but, uh, but there is also a, a large part is the discussion of value, and a lot of it has to do with workflows. How does it fit in your current workflows? It's a little bit different than the Americans. So I made a very long answer, but I think if I summarize, Americans understand value, really emphasize that. Africans uh, in the world I operate, a lot of it is uh, operational, um, operational uh, complexity and how you help to some extent with that and also bring value and cost cutting. Asia really is about how do you help me cut costs and uh, um, Europe is a combination. Australia is very, uh, Australia and New Zealand are very much like the United States. No, that totally yeah. makes sense. And, you know, I think this, you, you having understand the com complexity of selling globally into different, different areas of the world, right? It helps you better manage your prospects. Um, and so I love that, you know, those, those personas, right? Like they may remain true. I'd love to hear, you know, even though the different things that they care about, um, maybe a little bit different, Right, like, what about the discovery process? Like, is it very similar with your global customers, where you're you're trying to lead them uh, through a discovery process that that they find valuable, um, or does that differ when you're you're going to different parts of the region? That's a good point. Um, I think in general, our I would say the initial approach, the initial discovery, is fairly similar. Um, yeah because the personas that our customers are the same in the sense that they are concerned about the same things. The process then after a very early stage, after the first month or two of that 12 month process does take a very different, uh, um, a very different uh, track. I think part of it is distance. I have one guy covering uh, all of Latin America so if they have to be in Brazil one week and another, you know, another time, you know, it's not that the United States is small, but traveling from uh, Brazil to Mexico is, is much, you know, there's a lot more complexity in that. Um, right. So, and you require that personal touch. So I think if, if it does vary once the first, once the first seed is planted, it, it does vary. I think ultimately yeah. though, because the value proposition is exactly the same across geographies, I would say it's 80, 70 percent the same, thirty percent with the idiosyncrasies of the of the local uh, of the local place. And I will say in general, talking about personal touch, uh, I've sold a, and again, there's a press release, so happy to mention them. And that's the nice thing about reference customers. Uh, there's a telecom company in Australia called Indara, and uh, they basically uh, are, uh, are our customer. We are their digitization platform. There's there's a local competitor in Australia. There are competitors all over the world that flew to Australia, uh, and we couldn't we couldn't make it. We had a busy schedule at CONI, and we still closed that deal, uh, despite me never have been, having been to Australia. And our CEO visited them after the deal and contract were, was closed. And of course, I hired now local people, but um, I think, again, that goes back to in certain places, people understand value, and they need less the personal touch. They just Prove to me that what you're saying is true through POCs, through larger deployments. And if you do, we're okay. Um, so so yeah. it's not, that's true that. for the US, some places in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, yes. Less so for other places in the world. They really need that personal touch. Cool. You know, I think people are people and, yeah. um, and there may be a lot more similarities uh, 
you know, I think there's a lot, especially in the U.S., right? Like, there's a lot of division uh, or thought to be division, but I think people are people, right? And they, um, there's a lot of similarities when you're dealing with prospects, but I love to hear um, your thoughts on, on that. Man, I want to switch gears with you yeah. a little bit. For aspiring leaders, you know, people that are up and coming, maybe a new leader, um, like any advice that you'd give them as they're trying to like continue to grow in their career? I think uh, the first and foremost, it's a cliche, but be yourself, everybody else is taken. Uh, and it's true. If you have a certain manager, if you're a micromanager, be a micromanager. If you're like me, that is laissez fair and as long as you bring results, just text me once every couple of days with a quick update. I'm not even going to read your emails unless it's, if you write to me, read this email, I'll read it. Otherwise, all these CCs and CCs get deleted <laughs> automatically, right? I hire people that I trust and, uh, and uh, I really don't micromanage. And I, uh, uh, but be yourself, uh, whatever managerial style you like, go for it understand your limitations so i know well, my limitations i'm an agent of chaos um that's not a good thing as the company grows it's a great thing for early stage companies because just the the tasmanian devil I, 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 but at the end like everybody's so mesmerized oh okay we'll buy the solution that's right the evangelical part but then somebody <laughs> needs to actually catch up on, and, and and do what's what's required so uh, complement yeah. your weaknesses with the people you hire most of the people I hire, I think, to a T, are super organized. Uh, even the even the hunters, uh, they're better organized than I am because you know, it's not good cop, bad cop, but it's like this. In my case, the, the crazy guy, the crazy leader, but then the more the more even kiltered the sales director and and, and really 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 like um, stable farmer. But it's personalities I hire, and don't hire people like yourself. Hire people who compliment you. And if you're a, if you're a yeah, micromanager, then then figure out what people complement your uh, your your skill set, the things you're lacking. You're not going to be good at everything. So be yourself. Hire people that complement you. Hire people you trust. And hire people that your that eventually that your customers will trust as well. Right. That's that's again going back to the yeah. original thing. Um, so those are kind of three overall things. Stand out. Um, and again, don't be corny about standing out, uh, but stand out and figure out, I, I, I am lucky in the sense that I was born standing out and I was born, uh, um, I will, I'll tell you a joke. My, 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 my family has very, very dark humor. I have very dark humor. And, um, when I had my terrible two, I was very, very uh, commanding. Like I would walk around and tell my parents what to do. I was the firstborn, <laughs> and um, and my then my parents, you know, Jewish, so we we're allowed to do that joke. Would call me little Adolf, right? Because I would. Time, <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, you know, some people are, are are much more born with that aptitude and stuff like that. And and but there's also quiet leaders, and there's figure out who you are, figure out how you want to lead and be true to yourself be true to the person people around you and um yeah that's that's the best advice i can have and also ask yourself do you really want to be a sales leader Ooh, that's 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 a um, 
you're laying some knowledge on us now. You know, not everyone is cut out to be a. Not everybody not can. Not everybody should want to do it. And what I mean by that is, I have a, a one of the people I trust the most in my team. I really do. Uh, he's going to be. He was promoted. He's going to be promoted again. But he's promoted more in the style of where Google engineers are promoted. They have like one to ten. And you could be a number 10 in terms of salary and, and, and seniority in Google and not manage a single person because you're a, a subject matter expert, you're, you're a knowledge expert, and, and people come to you and you, you work on tasks with them, but you don't manage them, even though you're much more senior. And, and I, I helped him climb down that tree uh, and understand what is it that you really want? Do you really want to ma ma manage people and he's more on the technical side and micromanage certain things and stuff like that? Or, or do you want to follow your passion and really dig into technology and stuff like that? And something clicked in him. And I'm not saying he won't manage a small number of people or one or two, but he won't be the team leader he thought. And he realized it came from ego. He wanted to be the big guy with 10 people reporting to him at some point and stuff like that. And I said, what does 10 people reporting to you do for you? And if it doesn't do... I don't, my goal is not to have 10 people reporting for me. My goal is to build a successful company. And as a sales leader in a startup, every 18 months, your job changes. And if you can change, then move on and let somebody else lead. So the first 18 months is really just six of us do everything, just do everything. And there's no... Do QA, QC, like you're part of a small team. There is, doesn't matter that your title is VP sales. You really, what are you selling? $20,000, $30,000 worth of deals that uh, one day will end up $5 million. It's, it's pocket money, right? After 18 months, you have to hire your first one or two people. What does it mean now? Well, you still have to be lead sales, but there's a little bit more of a technical team. So you're not doing that, but you're really connected to it because you have to understand. And you really are saying, okay, these two people that I hired, how do, how do they start closing deals? And then you start, and then 18 months later, you have a bigger team. You have your tech sales and you have your hunters and you have your one, one or two farmers, one or two hunters, one or two sales ops. So it's, it's very small teams. So how do you manage these small teams to, to provide value and grow into big teams? And now you have a big team, six, six sales directors and four farmers. Okay, now again, another 18 months, your job changed again. And if you can't evolve, it's perfectly fine. Take your equity, take them all the money you made, take all the experience you have. Go back to another startup at an early stage. You'll be happier. You'll be more successful. Um, and I don't know, you know, maybe when uh, when my sales organization is 50 people strong, I'll be like, I don't want this. I'm not good at this. I don't want to do it. Maybe I'm good at I don't want to do this. Be true to yourself. What is it that is going yeah. to make you happy? I love that. You know, so often I think we are told to stick in this box and you know, it's okay to say, this is what I like to do. This is how I want to do it. And, and it totally makes sense, right? Like be happy with what you do. Cause there's too many jobs out there, um, to not be happy in what you do and enjoy it. Yep. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, last question I have for you. When you leave, when you leave this, this world, you know, and, and you're not here anymore. What do people, what do you want people to remember you for? I think there's a sentence. Uh, first of all, it's unrelated to work. I don't really care what people at work remember me for. 
Um, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a father of three, and there's a sentence that goes, you die twice. The day you die and the day the last person remembered you dies. Um, and I just want my family um, to remember me as a loving father, a loving grandfather, a loving brother, and stuff like that. Somebody that was good to them, same to my friends. Um, I hope to outlive most of them. You know, I hope to die at a very old age. And um, yeah, I think you should only care what the people that uh, that really uh, really loved you and that you loved think about you. The rest matters less. I will put things in perspective. So I'm, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm also the uh, board advisor and co-founder at a company called Nostromo Energy. And it's in the clean tech space. And I love clean tech. I think it's it's very important. Uh, climate change is, is a big threat. Uh, pollution is a big threat. Plastic pollution is a big threat. And everybody works in that. It's very, it's very important what they do. And, um, and the CEO said, you know, uh, for, for whatever reason, I didn't want to join full time. I'm not going to get into that. But he said, join me. Let's make history. And I asked him a simple question. I said, do you know who was the wealthiest person 500 in, the United, in, in England 500 years ago? He said, no. I said, do you know who was the most important playwright in England 500 years ago? He went Shakespeare. I told him, exactly. There are only three ways to make history and really be remembered 500 years from now. Change the way we perceive the world, like Newton and Einstein. We know who Newton was because we, he completely changed how we see the world from a, 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 a scientific understanding. Change what people believe in. We remember Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, right? And, and Abraham and stuff like that. <laughs> and touch their heart with art. Unless you do one of these three things, mm -hmm. you're not going to. Does it remind, matter if you remember? I can tell you that 200 years from now, nobody remember, will remember who Jeff Bezos was or Bill Gates was. And if uh, all those rappers that want to become billionaires, they're going to be remembered by that. If, if Jay-Z did... 10 more albums and one of them had an amazing song people will remember forever, he will be more lasting than the billion dollars he has and being uh, that famous. I think he misses the point if he wants to be remembered. And I, am, I have no artistic inclination. I'm an atheist, so I'm not, I don't believe in anything. I'm not going to change it. And I'm not smart enough like Newton or Einstein to change how we perceive the world. So I am not, I won't be remembered 500 years ago from now, so it doesn't matter if I'm remembered 50 years from now, it, by, by most most people, it does matter how my son will remember me, my daughters, even my ex, my uh, my brother, my friends, my grandkids, if I have them, etc. And I just want them to remember as a loving person. And I know it's very hippie of me in a sales call, but that's uh, that's how I see it. I love it. I love it. And I don't think I'd have it any other way for you. Um, well, cool, man. Hey, this is another episode of How the Greats Did It. 